I love people. From my supplier, who, you know, Kevin, who brings me the chickens and the delivery guy who delivers the fish, the customers that walk by who are seeing happy faces, or better still, turning a, a sad face around. Kill them with kindness. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The impact of the pandemic forced most hospitality businesses into damage control. For some, life had already thrown a curveball and forced them to consider the impact of monumental change and develop a disaster plan in case it's needed. In some way, that forward thinking allowed them to navigate through the pandemic better than some, but how has it reshaped what they do? Matteo Pignatelli is the owner of Matteo's in Melbourne, Victoria. Matteo, how are you? Great, Huck. How are you? Good. Well, how are you feeling at the moment? It's been quite a turbulent year and a half, but Melbourne's starting to open up again. What's what's the general feeling? General feeling is um, excitement, but I think the anxiety here is um, the, the lack of staff is a really huge problem like I've never seen it like this I've, I've been here for 27 years and we certainly gone had ups and downs with a shortage of um staff or team members or just labor at the moment we just don't have any people that can can open so we're allowed to open and they're easing restrictions but we're not restricted by government now we go restricted by the lack of um personnel and and, and across the board and it's across the board in all industries What's the situation with the restaurant? Um, what's the plan? There is restrictions still at the moment, but what's what's your plan? Plan is to open and service as many people as we can to a standard which we um, have done so over the last twenty seven years. In a nutshell, what 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 has changed significantly is that since I opened since day one in July nineteen ninety four, we we had traded a seven-day-a-week operation, lunch and dinner, seven days, which is easier to roster for seven days rather than six days. But the one thing that has changed now, we've gone down to five days. We close on the Monday, Tuesday, and I kicked myself. I should have done that from day one. It's just so much easier to, to roster. You just have on the core team of a couple of casuals to fill in the holes on the weekend. And on a bottom line, so uh, bottom line point of view, it, it's certainly a lot been a lot more. Um, I don't want to say profitable because you know I want say a lot more profitable and but but profitable in not just monetary but mental wise and uh, uh, amongst the staff, so everyone's happier. They get their full two days off, um, and we found that a lot of the customers that would have come on a Monday, Tuesday are coming on the Wednesday, Thursday. So. I really do kick myself and I think, well, maybe I should have done that sooner. Well, tell us about that hesitancy all those years ago. It's, it's not uncommon. Most restaurants felt the need to be open as much as possible in order, in order to make a profit, but this has sort of changed the model a bit. What sort of impact do you think this change will happen and, and why do you think hospitality used to think like that? Well, it used to think like that and some people still think like that because, and even more so now, because of the rents and on a Monday, Tuesday, they're thinking it's idle and they need to have some turnover to 
to to um, basically contribute to the to the fixed overheads. The problem is, though, is what I found is you're diluting your customer base over seven days rather than condensing them into the five day period. Having said that, if you could fill up, if I had a small restaurant where I could I fit you know under fifty people. I probably would need to uh, open on a Friday uh, on a seven days to recoup some some revenue, but I've got a two hundred seater restaurant, so it's it really easy. No, having said that, the bigger the restaurant, the more rent you pay normally, so the more justification to open the seven days. Mateo's has been around for for a long time, but take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play for you and your family as a kid? Well, I grew up in, my parents had a, a pizza, fish and chip shop in, in Westgarth, very trendy area at the moment, here, down here in the inner north of, of Victoria or of Melbourne. And there were five kids in the family and I was on the pizzas with dad and I had a brother on the roast chickens. I had a sister on the hamburgers and I had another sister on the fish and chips. So we grew up around food all the time and I always laugh and say when I want to retire and slow down and I'll get I'll buy a pizza shop but looks like some people have um, beat me to it in Sydney and in Melbourne because I don't know if they, you know there's Matteo Pizza in Sydney now we have a Matteo's um, Pizza Parlor in they just opened up another one in Malvern and in Hyatt there's a Matteo's Delicatessen in Footscray it's pretty cute, actually. Though I do get a lot of people ringing up asking, ringing up asking to order a takeaway sandwich or a pizza, and you you got to say to them, "No, no, wrong, Mateos." But when I started in those years, when I bought the restaurant, it used to be the, the original Mietas here, which is quite famous. So you know, obviously, I piggybacked off her old brand. It was Mieto Mietas come Mateos, and it was it was a smart thing to do. But nowadays, I always mentor some young kids and I say to them, whatever you do, do not put your name on the window. It is the worst decision you could do. But, you know, live and learn. Tell us about that. Why why not put the name on the window? Well, think about places like Jacques Ramon, Stephanie's, because it's hard to sell the business with your name on the door because people associate it with a person and goodwill to that person so it's a much harder brown's restaurant was another one so but it's funny because with us or with with mateo's north Fitzroy, um people would walk in and say um oh hi and you especially now with all the covert check-ins and all that and i'll tell them i'm hi mateo and they go oh you with the same name as the restaurant and i say yeah it's actually my restaurant and i don't realize that there's actually a person so that the name has gone beyond the person and become its own standalone brand. That makes sense. Tell us about those early days. You mentioned Mietas, an absolute icon of Melbourne and Australia's culinary landscape. What was it like for you all those years ago and the challenges you had opening up? So, so it was actually pretty easy, easy to open up a restaurant in those days. And it's very different nowadays. The landscape is very different. The, the culture, the work ethic. Everything's very different. So I, I was I was actually studying accounting, and 
I have to say it's been the secret to my success is to look at numbers. But I was studying accounting. My mother was working at a restaurant in Carlton called Masani's, which is still there. And I went and picked her up one day and I said, uh, or he said to me, oh, do, what do you do on the weekends? And I thought, oh, no idea. You know, I just, you know, not do much. Um, he said, do you want to come and work behind a bar? I'd never worked in a restaurant before. I still remember one of the waiters came up and I was just helping out behind the bar and he said, oh, I'll have a G&T. And I said, what's a G&T? I honestly didn't know. And I think about it now, I think how embarrassing. And in those days at Masani, so I was on the floor and Guy Grossi was in the kitchen. That's still going at Masani. So that's right. I remember one week during Christmas, we had a competition guy and I, he could do the most hours. And that week, I did 95 hours and the guy did 98 hours, but he cheated because he actually slept in the car in the car park. So, And that's hard to imagine. If you think about to do 98 hours in a week, you'd have to be there at six and you're there till two. And that's exactly what happened. We loved it. We had the best time. And the little team we had doesn't happen nowadays. You, you wouldn't do it anyway. We certainly don't do it. I freak out when someone doesn't have their full two days off. So... There were lots of lots of people around. It was really uh, all the waiters were real waiters. When I say real waiters, not that they're not real waiters now, but it was their profession, and they they made a living at it. You know, they bought, and I see them now, and they've bought a couple of properties in those days. Admittedly, properties were a lot cheaper then in those days. But I was at Masani's and. Um, I was looking around and I thought, oh, there's got to be more to this. So I want to, I always had a desire to uh, learn more. And so I thought, oh, I'll go and enroll at William Anglis. And I did William Anglis in, um, in the city here, Centre of Excellence. And they had a new diploma course, which I enrolled for, thinking it was part-time because it was only 25 hours contact. And I thought, okay, I could do that and I can work at the same time. You know, I'm used to doing 90 hours a week. So soon I dropped out of that and when I worked at Guy Grossi's new restaurant, my wife was a sous chef there. And we went out to Glen Waverley. We did a little stint that was around about the GFC time. So, and then we wanted to move in closer to the to the city. It was funny when we we when we opened up this restaurant in Glen Waverley, it's called Fidelis. I think it's still there, actually. And we used to serve garlic bread. There was gingham tablecloths on the tablecloth on the table. It was, and I remember saying to the owners, because I was only a minor shareholder, I said to the owners, "We've got to get rid of this garlic bread. It's just too." And these were eighty nine, ninety. And I remember him saying to me, Matteo. How about we do a deal? The money we take and make on garlic bread, that could be your wages. And I thought, oh, and I looked at the numbers and I thought, wow, okay, we're keeping the garlic breads. <laughs> but then certainly when uh, we looked at buying Mietas here, it was a friend of mine had it because it was Mietas, between Mietas and myself, there was nine years, seven owners. Right, because everyone, because it was on the north side of uh, Alexander Parade, everyone that was taking over was 
losing money and trying to put things on the menu, thinking that the the bohemian customer base of the other side of Brunswick Street would spill over. And they had so when I bought it, it was a pizza shop actually, and I thought I'll buy it and I'll sell it. It had all the original Mietas furniture, then the credentas, had a pizza oven, and I had an exit plan or an exit strategy before I had an actual business plan, I thought I'd buy it. If sign on the lease, if it doesn't work, I'll just sell all the furniture and it was all antique. It was beautiful furniture that Tony Knox had um, uh, bought over the years and sell that and I'll just break even. But I remember, actually I remember my first review was, or our first review, so I had Franker in the kitchen doing traditional Italian food. Um, with a modern twist. I remember our first review was um, by Jeff Slattery. He did a, a, a magazine, I forget what it's called now. And he said, oh, everything's great, but it's on the wrong side of the street. You know, I'll give it, I'll give it till Christmas. But, you know, and I, you know, 27 years later, I kind of, I look at that every now and then. I say, um, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so... But we, we, we evolved, you know. So when we started a family, uh, Franco had to leave the kitchen, um, got a new chef, basically uh, a brilliant chef. I must say he was really good. I think he's back in Sydney. Um, I don't know where he is now, but he was like a walk in the LaRousse. And he, he would come up with dishes that were, were brilliant. So... And every year, every couple of years, I would change chefs anyway because I never wanted the restaurant to be associated with a chef because I'd seen it happen too long when they moved that the the, name, the restaurant would go down or would, there'd be a downturn in business. So I always tried to associate the brand or the Mateos with a feeling rather than people in particular. And our philosophy has always been it's about the customer, not about me or the chef or any particular waiter. And that's how we've kind of built it along the way. So we're not, even though we, we're a little bit of an egotist, we're not really egotists. Tell us about that feeling. 27 years is extraordinary for a restaurant, but what is it about Mateo's? What, what is it that you deliver that's fo- so focused on the customer? The philosophy we had at the beginning was, I used to watch that show, Cheers, you know, where you come in and everybody knows your name. And that's what it is. Everyone, there's a lot of people doing really good food at the moment. And there's, I think we, I like to say that the restaurant has a personality and the personality is that of welcoming, value, um, firmly professional service is what I call it. You come in. We accommodate any requests you have. You know, we, we have a saying, you know, if, if we've got the ingredients, you have the time and prepare to pay accordingly, we'll do anything for you. Because we are, we're in, and, and that's what I think sometimes, I, even when I go out, people forget we're in hospitality. You know, it's about the customer. You know, not everyone now, I think people are starting to realise, and, and that's a trend I saw, I've seen in Sydney, you know, People used to say years ago, well, it was all very arrogant. Was that new? But the last few times, I go to Sydney quite a bit. It's great to see 
that they've flipped that and now it's all about that hospitality and generosity and it's all about perceived generosity as well and and it, it doesn't you know as long as they feel that they're getting value for money and and they're happy i think that's what all it is it's nothing and the food's good honest food we're not trying to do tricky stuff and you know we we try to push the boundaries a little bit but at the end of the day it's got to be it's got to be tasty it's got to be hot when it's meant to be hot um and it's not too um too out there there's too many, there's a lot of people doing that out that doing that as well and good on them you know i think uh, i get excited by that but it's not my business model Three decades is extraordinary. What have been some of the highlights over those decades? I think the highlights for me personally is when I see people that have worked here and trained and have gone on and done great things. And and, and to me, that's a uh, like a pat on the back saying you have contributed contributed to the industry, and that's and that's what I try to do by in a way that I've only ever had the one restaurant. I've never had the desire to do two restaurants and to contribute. I've done other things like I was on, uh, sat on the council with Restaurant and Catering Association. I was even president for a few years. So I did that. Then also I'm pretty uh, passionate about training in industry and now Having gone to William Angler, so I sit on the board as well as uh, the industry representative, trying to influence some change in the way the curriculum's done, and and that's been that's been really good. And just watching the kids come through that and trying to pr- promote to industry, other industry people, that we need to send kids to to school. We can't just ask for qualified people, we need to take on trainees. And I, every time I see a restaurateur or a chef or I say to them, oh, well, how many trainees do you have? It's our, it's our role or our obligation to train these people. And you can't expect to just pick and choose qualified people out there. You need to invest in training. It's so important. Training and not only training, development. You know, taking people to the next level. The pandemic has forced many hospitality businesses into damage control, but you were thrown a pretty huge curveball uh, quite a few years ago and and um, created a, a disaster plan. Can you tell us about that time? Yeah, so about um, I survived a couple of disaster plans. We had the gas crisis, which we got through. We had the GFC, which we got through. But the biggest one was about five, six years ago now, I, Remember having a bit of a sniffle. I just, I just got back from overseas. Actually, I'd been away for um, mm-hmm. uh, for a little uh, a break. I got back had a bit of a, a stuffy nose, and I thought I had a bit of a cold. But it turned out it was um, a lymphoma. So it was, I went to the ENT. The guy stuck his camera up there, and it was actually a cancer. And it was it was. Initially, it wasn't much of a shock, but when he said to me, oh, you've got a 50-50 chance of survival, and I'm thinking, is that a lot? Is that high? Is that low? I wasn't even sure about it. But what really made the 
the problem sink through it was when because I did have a I had income protection and I had um, a, a trauma insurance which my account won't put me. When the trauma insurance guy said, "Yep, no worries, checks in the mail," and they only give that to you when it's pretty serious and you're going to die more or less. So I started treatment with chemo and radiotherapy and. More importantly, what I was doing was I was setting up the restaurant to to clean everything up, make sure all debts were paid. I actually had formed another company. I was going to do some um, outside catering and delivery. I was going to set up ghost kitchens all those years ago. Five and a company called Tuk Tuk Kitchen, which I still have the company. And so basically, I put all my affairs in order, thinking. If I died, it sounds a bit drastic, but exactly what it was, if I died, there was no burden for the family, the wife and kids, and literally had everything all set up. And then when COVID came, it was like, yeah, is that the best you got? It hit me harder than that, you know. And luckily I am in remission, in, in a good news, you know. I, I'm in remission and... I think um, I'll die of cirrhosis or cirrhosis before I die, I die of um, any cancer or anything. But I, I don't think you get liver poisoning with Grand Cru Burgundy, though, do you? Or... <laughs> what sort of impact did, did, did that have on you personally and, and your um, commitment to the hospitality sector? It's a good, good question in that it really changed the way I looked at things. You know, it was when I got sick. Funnily enough, when I got sick, I had um, had a brilliant young chef. He might have been on your show, actually. He bought a low. He was such a good kid. He was passionate, and he was doing. I think some of the best food we'd, we'd ever we'd ever done, and it was very clever and and still tasty. So, but I remember thinking how we lost the hat in those days because. The hats were a big thing, you know, the good food guide. And we always had two hats for years and years. Funnily enough, we made more money when we lost hats. But, you know, hey, that's another that's another story in itself. That's another hour if you ever have one. And, um, and I saw how upset he was. And I thought when we lost it, and I think it was because when you change chefs, say they take a hat off for whatever reason. And... And I was really upset for him. And I thought, it's not that important. And that's also I was having treatment, you know, I was knocking on heaven's door or might have been hell's door. And the really focused was on everyone being happy. (laughs) That sounds really, you know, wanky, but, you know, I wanted all my customers to leave the door happy. What's going to make you happy? What do you want that will make you happy? Not what will make me happy, because that's what will make me happy. You know, the chips are cold. No problem. I'll get you some more chips. So all of a sudden, because I'm sure it was the stress that gave me the cancer in the first place. And so it really flipped. And you realize, you put you put everything into perspective about what is important in life and really tried to enjoy a bit more time with my family, tried to uh, make sure that the, the staff were happier as well, what made them happy. I think that's when we, cho- we cut the hours as well. 
you got to think in those days, I was running it like the um, what's that TV show on uh, SAS? On <laughs> so the restaurant was run a bit like SAS. It was all old school, you know. When people would watch that Gordon Ramsay show, Boiling Point, I go, yeah. What's the problem? Isn't that normal? Or not that it was ever that bad here, but and I realised that it should, didn't have to be like that. So, and that's where it all changed. Priorities changed, and but still, always about quality and value and customer satisfaction. The pandemic landed, and you were were prepared in some ways for it with a disaster plan. What sort of impact has it had on on what you do, though, apart from changing your hours and things like that? To be honest, I don't think it has had much of an impact. I spent most of the lockdown. We didn't do any takeaway. It just, to be honest, it wasn't something I was interested in. Uh, more, what I was interested in was that, to making sure that. The team were looked after. They were okay. And when once I sorted them out, because I was okay. You know, I'm not going to lie. I was okay. I set myself up uh, a few years before for something a lot worse. So this was kind of nothing. It was like a, a nosebleed. But I wanted to make sure that during the, lo- the lockdown that the staff were all okay and I looked after them. And I would, as a habit, come into work every day literally either walk or and as a point I would try to make ring at least one restaurateur or one colleague a day just to check in on them how you're going help them fill in their grant their forms because you'd be surprised how many because it was too hard they wouldn't do and I said no no you can do this you can do that and and just talk them through that and to me that was great that was much um, satisfying or as satisfying as serving a customer and them leaving happy. So it was it was quite um no it was nice and all those people appreciated it and it's great how it's brought I think it's brought the industry closer together though now that you know if there's staff shortage you're all trying to steal staff from each other it's just a bit you know <laughs> Brings out the worst in people. You mentioned staffing, but what are some of the opportunities to come out of this situation where the hospitality can shine a light on on itself and be better? The the, the industry, and I've always said it, needed to change. Unfortunately, the government's trying to corporatise the industry, which I don't think is the right way to go because we are in the hospitality business business industry because we don't want to be in a corporate business. Can we be more professional? 100%. And we need to be more professional and a little bit more a bit more compliant. And, but um, moving forward, um, I'm thinking the, uh, what COVID's bought. Uh, the, so I think we do need to do more training. One thing which I think we – an opportunity that has arisen, and I'm working on it at the moment with some restaurateurs, is tapping in to a more the senior mature market that have either left the industry or have retired to come back in and train the young kids who are coming up, who I'm inspired by some of these young kids that are, want, want to learn, 16, 17-year-olds, want to learn, but there's no one to teach them. So... 
I'm working on a marketing campaign where putting it out there to guys that have changed the industry or even have retired just come in do a couple of shifts in their favorite restaurant it doesn't even have to be here just ring up your local restaurant that is willing to tap into your preserved skills so to speak and train and give back and really teach them what old hospitality or real hospitality is like i'll let you know how that goes by the way <laughs> well, there's, not that there's no one else, but honestly, there's an untapped market there, as are the the mums, the stay-at-home mums, and I'm not saying their parents, but the, predominantly their mums who, who who were chefs or in the industry, who were who were great at their jobs, because some businesses haven't been able to get their head around innovative rostering about tapping into this you know, resource that is out there that although and you have to work around them because, you know, obviously if they've got kids and it's important, but it's easy to do, just be a little bit more innovative and I think it will work for them. Uh, you've uh, run one of Australia's best restaurants for a long time now. What is it that you love about what you do? Um, I love people. I love, you know, from my supplier, who, you know, Kevin, who brings me the chickens and the delivery guy who delivers the fish, the customers that walk by, rung me during lockdown that said, oh, is everything okay? Just checking in on you. Um, and just saying, and I think you probably hear it all the time, saying happy faces. Or better still, turning a, a sad face around. Kill them with kindness is another saying we have, you know, and some people you just can't turn them around. So if you can get a 95% strike rate, but I do love these uh, small artisan, you bespoke little restaurants opening up here and there that are doing amazing stuff. And it just, it really is great because we are being consumed by larger groups who, having said that, they're doing a great job as well. They run very professionally, but you lose that personal artisan sometimes because they're trying to do something that is a lot, a lot more conservative. There's some amazing food around um, at the moment. How, how do you see the future of the Australian culinary landscape moving forward and, and um, what are you expecting to see? What I'm, I'm worried I'm seeing is that a lot of food is being bought in pre-prepared, pre-filleted, like you put on an apprentice, um, fillet of fish. Oh, is that what a whole fish looks like? Oh, is that how a big carcass looks? And it's all been driven by labour costs and shortage of labour. So nowadays you buy everything portioned, everything cleaned, because even though you pay a, a higher food cost on it, there's a lower labour cost on it. <laughs> it's all. But every now and then, the little pockets of guys and girls just doing some great stuff and tasty, interesting. I'm, I'm just blown away sometimes with things you say, I go, I never thought about that. But I have noticed everything is going back to basics. Everything's turned around. You know, there's, nothing's piled up anymore. They're getting away from, you know, 
smears and all those trends that have come and gone. Melbourne's just uh, opening up again. What's it? What's it feel like for you? Uh, opening the doors again and, and welcoming back the regulars. It feel it feels good uh, for me personally. It feels like I've had a little bit of a rest. We've been able to recharge, and there's a, a, a sense of enthusiasm. We haven't. You know, we were worried about this problem about making sure when people came in that they're double vaxxed that there would be some resistance. There hasn't been much of that, or hasn't been any, to be honest. At the moment, most people are understanding and appreciative of the fact that we have been closed. And the other thing they're very aware of, which is refreshing, is that produce has gone up so much that they understand that we need to charge maybe a little bit more to to cover the costs, really, more than anything. But what I'm worried about is not charging too much because while there's going to be an initial spike in people coming back, I have a, I have a feeling that in July, August, September next year, people are going to leave, be leaving the country. They're all going to be going to Europe. So there's going to be a bit of a, um, a ghost town in Melbourne and I wonder whether it be in Sydney as well. So we don't want... We don't want to be burning people now while the demand is there because next year people aren't going to forget. And so we're going to, happy to help you out, but think about us next year as well. What are you, what are you most looking forward to um, as we move beyond this sort of um, period that's had such an impact on the industry? I'm looking forward to people resetting the way they think about training Training and the importance of training, the importance of development, uh, the importance of customer service. Um, I think that's what I'm really looking for because I think it will be a little bit different. People will be a little bit uh, will be much more efficient the way they run their businesses as well. But hopefully, they'll be a lot more appreciative of the customers walking in the door. <laughs> which, you know, and I think that's where I'm looking forward. And I'm looking forward to catching up with my friends, you know, been talking to them on the phone and just seeing how they're going. And I certainly wouldn't be doing it now because I'm pretty sure they'd be all hands-on trying to fill in holes until it all, it all opens up again and we get all staffed up again. Well, um, Matteo, I know there's so much to talk about. We're very honoured to have you on uh, Deep in the Weeds today to hear a bit of your story. Um, looking forward to hearing more about your approach on attacking the staff shortages. So please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Great, Huck. And then thank you for, you know, reaching out and talking to people and hearing different people's stories. And there are some similarities. I think you, you, I've listened to quite a few of your podcasts and I think... Um, it's really inspiring and sometimes it helps people to talk about their issues. So thank you. Keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Good on you, buddy. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast.
or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.